Good morning, everyone. Welcome to New Creation Fellowship. Thank you for all of you who are joining us live today. And then, of course, those of you who are back home, uh, thank you so much for joining us in this live stream. We hope and pray that today's service will be encouraging and edifying as you come to know more about the great God that we worship. So without further ado, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, now we ask that your grace and your mercy would be upon us. Father, in the midst of all the things going around us, we ask that you would hush whatever anxious cry that we may be lifting up to you, knowing that your word is about to speak to our very heart and soul so that we could be attentive, so that we can know that you are the God who is in full control. Father, we pray that as we gather either online or together in person, that your spirit will make the words that I'm about to say effective and enriching to our lives so that we know that we are true children of God because of your son, Jesus Christ, and his great work on our behalf. Father, we pray now that through your spirit, you would minister to us as your people gather on this Lord's day. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So for the past few months, we've been going through a sermon series entitled The Way We Worship. And the whole point of this series was to understand why we do what we do, the way we do it in the context of the gathered worship on Sunday. And the hope of the series was by understanding the various components of our worship service, it would minimize the tendency that we see so often amongst Christians when they go to church, and that is simply reducing Sunday worship to a simple, remote, habitual thing devoid of any real meaning and impact. And so we are hoping that as we have gone through this series, you have been educated, you've been enriched, and therefore you've been in position to exalt your genuine worship to God. Well, today we end this series by taking a look at the very last thing that we do to end the service, and that's known as the benediction. The benediction, you know, it's that part where either I or Pastor Charles lift up our hands like this, and you typically respond with heads lowered, eyes closed, and hands reaching out like this. That's the benediction, or what is traditionally simply put, by most Christians, the closing of the service. And because that is how many Christians see it today, what they perceive it as functionally goes like this. The pastor reaches up his hands, and then that cues Christians to start tuning out and start thinking through what they need to do after they leave these doors, whether it's something as mundane as figuring out where to go for lunch after church or to prepare for that crucial meeting at work the next morning. But you know, to dismiss the benediction really does a disservice to your soul evident by the fact of what the word benediction literally means benediction is made up of two root words bene which literally means good diction which literally means word hence benediction literally means good word or to put it more clearly it's god's word that's good for you benediction is god's word for you that is good for you. And like anything that's good for us, by neglecting the benediction, by ignoring the benediction, by not engaging the benediction, you really will do harm to yourself. And so to prevent that from happening, we're going to take a look at this passage here in Hebrews chapter 13 so that you would come to understand why the benediction is so important, how you should engage it so that you can be enriched the way God intended and the way that you're going to see this is through this context of how the benediction helps us understand and apply God's peace in our life. I want to show you why the benediction is so important because of the fact of what it says and how it applies God's peace into your life. So with that in mind, 
three things I'd like to share with you in today's sermon. First, we're going to talk about the promise of God's peace. Then we're going to talk about the extension of God's peace. And then we're going to end it with the grace of God's peace. The promise, the extension, and finally the grace of God's peace. That's all embedded in today's benediction. So let's begin with the first point, the promise of God's peace. If you take a look at what it says in verse 20, you'll notice that the author of Hebrews describes God in a very interesting way. How does he call God? How does he refer to him as? He calls him what? The God of peace. God of peace. Yeah. Um, I imagine that when most people are being introduced to Christianity for the first time, and if that happens to be you, welcome. But most people, when they encounter a description of God, God of peace, you would imagine, probably doesn't impress them right? After all, we live in a world of Marvel and comic books, right? We're more impressed with descriptions of God that go like God of war or God of wrath or God of thunder. But God of peace, I don't know. Most people would, I imagine, image a God that's kind of like a cosmic hippie, someone who is kind of weak, someone who's kind of a weenie, someone who doesn't seem that impressive, right? That's how most people would probably imagine what God of peace is and therefore be somewhat dismissive of it in terms of how important that phrase is. But you know, for the original people who received this letter to the Hebrews, they would not have reacted that way. In fact, they would have reacted quite the opposite. Why? Well, you have to remember, people back then when this letter was written lived in a time where everything was very tumultuous, very chaotic. It wasn't unheard of for people back then to be frequently invaded by neighboring tribes or to be completely conquered by a rising empire. I mean, just think for something to the effect of September 11th happening to you every other year, and you can understand the social and psychological stability of people living back then. You see, for ancient people, the idea of peace wasn't some naive dream of a hippie going on hunger strike. No. Peace was considered by ancient people as the greatest achievement a person could ever accomplish, which is why if you ever study the writings of tyrants, of rulers, of dominating kings, or even the speeches of political leaders in our recent day, you would hear the rhetoric of peace over and over and over again. Genghis Khan constantly talked about peace. Napoleon constantly referred to peace. Adolf Hitler spoke about peace. Abraham Lincoln mostly wrote in his speeches about peace. Peace was considered in the eyes of many in the ancient world as a display of the most powerful achievement ever, meaning the person who could be a person of peace, a person who could produce peace, was considered the most powerful person of all. And friends, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us today. By referring to God as the God of peace, he is trying to say that our God, is a powerful God. And that is something that he wants to make sure that we especially understand in the context of the benediction. Why? Well, let me see if I can explain it this way. Most Christians today experience the benediction the way they would experience the end credits of an amazing movie. I mean, just think of some of the most epic, most moving and amazing movies that are out there today. You know, the dialogue is filled with so much drama. The characters are so inspiring to where you wish you could be like them. The music is just so moving and so majestic that you are just lifted out of your seats. And for the next hour and a half, you're fully enraptured and you're engaged in this experience of this thing of a story, right? The movie. But then what happens? The movie suddenly ends. The screen fades to black. The lights turn back on in the theater and the end credits begin to roll. And then without warning, you're brought back to your own reality. 
and now have to face the chaos that you call your life. That's how many people experience the benediction after an amazing worship service where for an hour and a half, people come to church and they're so engaged, they're so enraptured with this experience of worship where the music is just lifting them up emotionally. The sermon is just engaging them intellectually. The prayers are comforting them psychologically. And then without warning, the preacher comes up, lifts his hand and ends it all with the benediction. And again, it's like you're jerked back to your reality. And now you have to face the pain, the problems, and the people who cause those things as you walk out these doors. That's how many people experience the benediction. And because that is so, and if that is you, the author of Hebrews is telling us, you need to pay attention. You need to understand what the meaning of the benediction is and the reason why God gives it to us. Because he is trying to understand that God is a God of peace. He is telling us that when we go out into the world, we're not going into a world that's ruled by natural selection and where the theme of survival of the fittest displays your life to where it's up to you to figure out how to make life work. No, the author of Hebrews is saying, because your God is the God of peace. When you go out into the world, he is there waiting for you and he is ready to be with you. And he promises you that he is in full control and that he is more than capable of bringing peace into life, including your own life. After all, that is the modus operandi of our God, is it not? That is his MO, case in point. First book of the Bible, Genesis, the first chapter. What is it saying God is doing? He's hovering over the darkness, the destructive forces of chaos of pre-creation, right? And what does the text tell us God's relationship is to this dark, destructive chaos? He is in full control. He has full power. In fact, he has full power that simply through his words, he is able to rule over it. To where by the power of God's word, he is able to bring light out of darkness, order out of chaos, peace from destruction, thereby creating a world that is beautiful and untainted by sin, at least not yet tainted by sin, right? The Bible tells us that God's word is so powerful that his power in his words can bring peace in chaos. And because his promise is made up of words, the promise of peace that's embedded in this benediction is an assurance to you and I that no matter what hardships we go through, no matter what turmoil that we have to face, no matter what sufferings and setbacks that we are enduring, The promise is by his powerful word that he is the God of peace and he will bring peace into your life. And I don't know about you, but I could use some peace, right? Because I think it's safe for me to assume that all of us have some chaos going on in our lives right now, are we not? Whether it's the chaos of your finances due to pay cuts at work or being cut from work altogether, whether it's the chaos of strained relationships because of the tumultuous political climate, racial climate, cultural climate that we're in right now where friendships are being severed, family relationships are getting strained, or maybe it's the chaos of figuring out how to educate your kids while trying to maintain job security. Friends, we are living in times where we are filled with so much chaos and tumultuous tension. And that's why you need to be paying attention to the benediction because it's there that our God promises us peace. And because his word is so effective, that promise should give us assurance to go out into the world with such confidence 
so that we don't have to be afraid of it. But then, embedded in that promise is also something else. A second reason why the benediction is so important for us to understand. Because not only does the benediction give us confidence to go back out into the chaotic world, it gives us a clear understanding of what we're to do in the world. What do I mean? Well, let me go to my next point, the extension of God's peace. Let's read verse 21 as we continue to hear this benediction. It goes like this. May the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will. The author of Hebrews here goes on to tell us a second reason why the benediction is so important, why we must pay special attention to it. You know what it is? It tells us what our job is. Let me say that again. The benediction tells us what our job is. You know, for some of us here, we're at a point in our life where we're trying to figure out what we should be doing as our vocation. We are occupied in trying to figure out what our occupation should be. Whether you're in school right now and you're struggling with whether or not you should major in this or that because you're not sure what kind of job you want to do with it. Or maybe you are working right now, but you're not satisfied with the kind of work that you're doing. And so you're thinking, should I move on to another line of work? You know, trying to figure out what you should be doing in this life in the form of your job can be some of the most strenuous, stressful things to go through. I mean, for those of you who are well-established in your career, you can remember, you can think back of how anxious you were, how filled with angst and, and frustrations because you had to figure out what to do, right? Well, you know what? People back in the days of the Bible, they never struggled like that. They never worried about, they never stressed over what they should be doing for their job. Why is that? Well, if you ever read the Old Testament, specifically the book of Genesis, you find something interesting. If you ever look at the life of the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they always did something very interesting on their deathbed. You see, when they knew they were about to die, they would summon one of their sons, sometimes even their grandson, and what they would do was they would place their hand on the head of their son, and they would literally give them a good word, a literal benediction. Let me read to you an example of one. Genesis 27, this is Isaac giving his benediction to his son Jacob. It reads like this. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. Here's what's interesting about this benediction. Not only does it reveal to Jacob what God is gonna do in his life, but it also reveals what he should be doing for God, okay? In other words, the benediction told the person receiving it what they were to do with their lives, what their job description in life was, basically. This is why people like Jacob, people like Isaac, they never struggled with what they should do because essentially the benediction told them what they were to do, you see? And here's what's so interesting. If you ever read all the benedictions like in the book of Genesis, where a father is giving one to his son, they're all unique, they're all personalized, and yet they all have something in common. And you know what it is? Every benediction embedded in it told a person receiving that they had to continue the work of their father. This is what's so interesting. In many ways, the benediction was kind of like the handing over of the family business. You know, whenever a son takes over his father's business, that business will take on the unique traits and characteristics of the new owner, of the son. But because it's a family business, he can't just do whatever he wants with the business, right? He can't just completely change it to another complete different kind of business. No, it's a family business. He has the responsibility to continue the work that his father did and his father before him. 
He has a responsibility to maintain the legacy in which the business was founded upon. He has to make sure that the mission of this business continues on through him. And guess what, Christian? That same responsibility falls upon you every time you receive your benediction every single week. Believe it or not, the benediction is to remind you what your family job is in this world, okay? Because the Bible tells us that when you become a Christian, God becomes your father, you become his children, and therefore you have inherited the job responsibility of God's family business in the world, which begs the question, what exactly is God's family business in this world? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, listen again to what he says. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. According to Jesus, if you are a true child of God, you are in the business of bringing peace into the world, of being peacemakers, which makes sense because your Father in heaven is the God of peace. Duh, right? Makes sense. Which means your main job in life, your main vocation is to spread God's peace into the world, to extend God's peace into the world, which means you make it your life's ambition of minimizing, of undermining, of overturning the effects of sin in this world. And that job description should permeate every activity that you do in this life, whether you're talking about the activity of how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you raise your kids, how you recreate, how you hang out with people, and especially in the one activity that you and I spend most of our time on this earth doing, what your actual work is, your actual employment. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us what kind of jobs are more pleasing to God and less pleasing to God, right? And the Bible is very silent about, about that. But of course, there are some obvious jobs that no Christian should be doing, you know, adult film star, world-class assassin, you know, drug dealer. Yeah, those are things you can't do. But when it comes to normal, everyday work, whether it's a plumber, a baker, a teacher, a business person, a pastor, all of these jobs are on equal footing in the eyes of God. No one job is more important or more superior than any other. All vocations are equally valid in the eyes of God. You know why? Because every job in its own unique way reaches a certain part of the world and therefore certain kinds of people that no other job does. Because every unique job that is out there permeates God's peace in its own unique way. I want to show you a chart that I came across in a book that I'm currently reading called Seek First. And here the author shows us how every kind of vocation you can imagine is in one way a reflection of God spreading his peace into the world. Take a listen. First, there's what he calls redemptive work. God's peace is communicated through salvation, where you have pastors, theologians, missionaries. Then you have creative work, where God's peace is communicated through beauty. This is where musicians, artists, poets, painters, architects, designers come in. Then there is providential work, where God's peace is communicated through maintaining important systems and tools. This is mechanics, plumbers, firefighters, IT people, administrators. Then there is justice work, where God's peace is communicated through enforcing justice. Judges, lawyers, police officers, military politicians. And then there's hospitality work, where God's peace is communicated through renewal and rejuvenation. Chefs, bakers, hotel workers, event planners. There's compassionate work, where God's peace is communicated through comforting and healing the sick, like doctors, nurses, social workers, psychologists. And then there's revelatory work, where God's peace is communicated with knowledge and truth. 
educators, scientists, journalists, philosophers fall into this category. See, every kind of legitimate work that is out there in some shape or form extends God's peace into the world, and he does it through his children who are part of the family business of extending the peace of God. Do you understand? God is not just interested of his peace only existing within the walls of the church. God wants his peace to be in the philosophical realm, the financial realm, the educational realm, right? The artistic realm. That is our job, to be workers of peace, to be peacemaker. That is the second reason why you need to be aware of the benediction. You need to be paying attention so that as you get ready to leave this place, you are reminded again of what your role is in this life. And when you understand that, then you need to understand the third and final reason why the benediction is so important. This leads me to my final point, the grace of God's peace. Every now and then on the news, you'll hear about the Middle East peace talks, right? Usually involving Israel and Palestine or one of Israel's neighboring countries, where for a few weeks, there is what is known as a ceasefire, where there are parties on both ends agreeing to not engage in warfare and violence during this time of peace talking. But of course, what always tends to happen is one side or the other or both violates the peace talks and the ceasefire ends and then the warring and the violence resumes. This sad reality in many ways reflects the Christian's attempt to be a peacemaker. What do I mean by that? I simply mean this, Christian, as you attempt to live out this family business of being a peacemaker, of trying to bring peace into the world, you will face two things. Not you may or you possibly will, but you will face two things. And you know what they are? Suffering and failure. Suffering and failure. Let me quickly go through it. Christian, as you attempt to be a peacemaker, let it be known you are going to suffer for it. As you try to bring God's peace into the world, the world is going to respond with hostility, with antagonism. In other words, the world is going to react to your attempt to bring peace into it by just bringing more chaos into your life. Chaos that you could avoid if you simply followed the ways of the world, like live for yourself, live for money, live for pleasure, right? Let me give you an example. Let's say you work in finance, and the place that you work tells you that you are to play with the books to not be so honest with clients, to upsell products that are not advantageous to your customers. And they encourage you to do it. No, they threaten you to do it. But you choose as a Christian to say, you know what? I'm going to be a peacemaker. I will not get involved with these kinds of practices. I will live with integrity and work with integrity. What's going to happen? Your coworkers are going to think you're stupid. Your manager may even threaten to fire you. What is happening? You're being persecuted, right? You're being distressed. Chaos is now descending upon you. And when you go through that experience, what's going to happen? You're going to start doubting whether or not God's promise of peace is actually true. If it's actually capable of coming to fruition. And as a result, you are therefore going to be so susceptible of giving in to temptation, which is to what? To compromise your faith and to just not give in to the ways of God, but instead give in to the ways of the world. And as a result, it leads you to the second thing that will happen. You will fail. You will fail. As you try to be a peacemaker, you are going to fail. And friends, let me tell you right now, failure of living the Christian life is not an example that you're not a Christian. 
It actually is an indication that you are because one of the things that every Christian must experience and will experience is the inevitable realization that you're not as good as you once thought. You're not as devoted to God as you once thought. You're not as faithful to God as you once thought because you're going to see this dynamic to where the more you're exposed to the chaos of the world, the more you're going to see the chaos inside of you. The more you're confronted with darkness outside of you, the more it acts like a mirror of what is inside of you, which is that same darkness. Or if I could put it more simply, the more you are sinned against, the more you're going to see the sin in you. That's just something every Christian has to go through. You are going to go through it. You need to get ready for it because it is going to happen. And when it does, you have a decision to make. You're at a crossroads. What are you going to do? Are you going to throw in the towel and quit your job of being a peacemaker, which is no different than saying you quit God? Or are you going to get back up, dust yourself off, and keep going and keep trying and keep working for the Lord by doing the work of peace? The only difference between these two decisions is determined by how you view God towards you when you fail him. How do you see God in terms of how he sees you when you fail him? Most Christians, when they're honest with themselves, think that when they fail God, they think God has every right to reject them and to revoke his promise of peace into their life. That's how most Christians think. And in some ways, that instinct is correct. God has every right to reject you when you fail him and to revoke whatever promises he gives to you for your success, including the promise of peace. But when you feel that in your inevitable moment of failure is when you need to hear the benediction again because now you've stumbled upon the third and most important reason why the benediction is so important. Read again, verse 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant. What does that phrase mean? Through the blood of the eternal covenant? Well, put more simply, the author of Hebrews is saying this. God's promise of peace is not dependent on how successful you are as a peacemaker. Let me say that again. God's promise of bringing peace into your chaotic life is not dependent on how successful you are as a peacemaker. You know what God's promise of peace is dependent upon? It's dependent upon how successful Jesus is as your peacemaker. God's promise of peace is dependent upon Jesus' success as being the peacemaker. And guess what? He was successful. When he came into the world as your substitute savior and he suffered the full penalty of all of your darkness, all of your destructive ways, all of your sinfulness, including your failure as a peacemaker, he paid for all that penalty and he credited his perfect peacemaking life upon you to where if you trust it in faith, if you believe that is true, right, there is now a peace between you and God forever, eternal. It cannot be reevaluated. It cannot be revoked. It cannot be removed, you see? When you understand that God's promise of peace is contingent upon Jesus' perfect work as the perfect peacemaker, that means the next time you fail as a peacemaker, That's not going to ruin you. It's going to be an opportunity to help you learn more so that you fail less, so that you become a better peacemaker every time you fail because you will learn more of what not to do so that you can be more successful. You see, failure becomes an opportunity to grow in the grace of God, in the grace of God's peace. 
And that's what you need to be reminded of, Christian. As you go out into the world, as soon as this service ends, you have a God who's promising you, look, don't get so caught up with work performance. Don't get caught up of making the spiritual sale. Don't get so caught up of being the perfect peacemaker. I got you. Even if you fall, even if you fail, your Savior, Jesus Christ, is ensured that this promise of peace I'm going to give you will always be there. So go and be faithful. And if you fall, if you fail, get back up and keep going. And the more you understand that by hearing the benediction over and over again, oh, friends, you are going to be a person of peace. And the people around you are not going to simply see you. They're going to see the God who is your father. They're going to see the business that you are a part of in his kingdom. And that they're going to be drawn in because I'll tell you now, they may not like things about your God right now, but they're going to love the promises that he makes. And that will transform how they see him for who he really is. The great love of their life, the great hope of their destiny, the great peace to their soul. That is my charge to you. The next time myself or Pastor Charles gets up here and, and extends the benediction, be ready to receive what all of the benediction is to remind you of so that you can go out and be at peace and be a source of peace. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand the significance of the word that is good for us, the benediction. Father, for so many, we have just completely tuned out in a time where we need to be paying attention the most. And Father, we pray that starting now and every day moving forward, that as we gather and receive this good word from you, this benediction, that we would receive it, <clears throat> not just with open hands, but symbolically with open hearts, so that we know that we have assurance that our God is the God of peace and the promise of peace is upon us, so that we can be reminded of our main job, so that we can be assured that even if we fail, you will succeed through us because of Jesus. God, would you help us to remember these things so that we can truly be agents of peace in a world that desperately needs it. Father, we pray that you will help us make this come to fruition in our lives for the good of your people and for the glory of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen.